Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. Well, we are in the middle of our study through the book of Acts. We're calling it uh, this theme series, To the Ends of the Earth, and we've clearly come in halfway on a a scene here, which we'll backtrack and try and and unpack in a moment. But to kick us off, I want to read something to you uh, written by Tim Keller in The Atlantic, which is an online journal. He wrote this, I've spent a good part of my life talking with people about the role of faith in the face of imminent death. Since I became an ordained Presbyterian minister in 1975, I've sat at countless bedsides and occasionally even watched someone take their final breath. I recently wrote a small book on death, relating a lot of what I've had to say to people in such times. But when a little more than a month after that book was published, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, I was still caught unprepared. I spent a few harrowing minutes looking online at the dire survival statistics for pancreatic cancer and caught a glimpse of the On Death book on the table nearby. I didn't dare open it to read what I had written. My wife Kathy and I spent much time in tears and disbelief. We were both turning 70 but felt strong, clear-minded and capable of nearly all the things that we've done for the past 50 years. I thought we'd feel a lot older when we got to this age, Kathy said. A significant number of believers in God find their faith shaken or destroyed when they learn that they will die at a time and in a way that seems unfair to them. So when the certainty of your mortality and death finally breaks through... Is there a way to face it without debilitating fear? Is there a way to spend the time you have left growing into greater grace, love and wisdom? I believe there is, but it requires both intellectual and emotional engagement, head work, reasoning, and heart work, feeling. I can sincerely say without any sentimentality or exaggeration that I've never been happier in my life, that I've never had more days filled with comfort, But it's equally true that I've never had so many days of grief. But I've come to be grateful for those sideswipes because they remind me to reorient myself to the convictions of my head and processes of my heart. When I take time to remember how to deal with my fears and savor my joys, the consolations are stronger and sweeter than ever. Tim went to be with the Lord on the 19th of May this year. What strikes me about that excerpt from his uh, article in The Atlantic is the way that Tim speaks of this reorientation of himself, his thoughts and his feelings. Obviously, on the threshold of death, that gave him some perspective, as it would all of us. But there was this reorientation of who he was to the truth that he had been preaching about for years in a whole new way. Well, today as we continue this study in the book of Acts, we're going to be looking at something just like that, this reorientation of ourselves to the truth of God's bigger picture and how we can then move with confidence as a result. So I've titled this talk, Why Prophecy Matters. If you're taking notes, here's your outline as well. Now, typically when we think of prophecy, we we think of predicting the future, right? So uh, that's certainly a part of it, predicting the future. But in its most basic, prophecy is really just a message from God, uh, whether that's in the past, in the present, or in the future. Prophecy is a message from God, and I want to suggest that it matters to us because that is what reorients us and helps us move forward with confidence, hence the outline on the screen. We're going to set the scene, we're going to see how prophecy helps us to see the bigger picture, and then we're going to look at how prophecy helps us to move with confidence. So let's just dive on in and set the scene here. Acts chapter 18, we're going to walk through this verse by verse. If you have your Bibles, feel free to follow along with us. Verse 22, when he, Paul, had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Again, we're coming in halfway through a scene here. So what's going on? Well, Paul is the main character. He's the he in the sentence. And for the last four to five years, he's been traveling around the Mediterranean uh, telling Jews and Gentiles, that's non-Jews, the good news of Jesus. 
And he's done that through a series of what we've called missionary journeys. There's three in total. Uh, But by the time he is here at the beginning of at least where we are in Acts 18, he's in the middle of his second missionary journey where the little marker there is in Athens. You remember he gave that big speech to the, the, the philosophers there at the Areopagus or Mars Hill. Well, after Athens, he then traveled a little bit further left to Corinth. And it was there that his traveling buddies, Timothy and Silas, eventually caught up with him. And so he had some friends there. And as he was in Corinth, he ministered for another one and a half years with his two friends. And they made further friends along the way. Two friends in particular that will be relevant to our story today, Aquila and Priscilla. Well, after one and a half years, 18 months, Paul decides to get into a boat and head home. But along the way, they stop off at this city called Ephesus. And there in Ephesus, we we aren't told if Timothy and Silas traveled with them, but we are told that Aquila and Priscilla traveled with Paul to Ephesus. And it was there in Ephesus that they actually got out and decided to stay while Paul got back on the boat and he decided to head all the way back to Judea, to Caesarea, and that lands us right now in verse 22, where we read, he, Paul, landed at Caesarea. He went up and greeted the church, then went down to Antioch. Now, when it says that he went up to the church here, he's not actually going to the church in Caesarea. Back then, to go up was a topographical reference. We think of going up on a map like going north. Uh, They meant going up like go climb a hill. And Jerusalem was the city on the hill. So when it says that he went up to the church, that's referring to him going up to the Jerusalem church. Now, there's a lot that we could say about why he went there. I think it has something to do with this vow that is mentioned in verse 18. I'm not going to unpack that. I'm just going to let you sit with that. But please come have a chat if you'd like to know more about why this vow in verse 18 would warrant him to go to Jerusalem. But he goes to Jerusalem. I think he fulfills his vow there. And then we read that Paul went down. So he went down the hill of Jerusalem to Antioch, which is up north. So he went all basically that straight line on on the right-hand side there through Syria into Antioch. And it was there in Antioch that uh, the second missionary journey officially came to an end because, remember, that was where he was sent off to begin with in Acts 15. Now, this departure from Antioch, we read that he stayed there for some time, kind of regrouped with the team, with, with... headquarters back home. Uh, And then it says, matter of factly, that he just hit the road again. That's actually the beginning of the third missionary journey. So there's not a lot of detail in here. In fact, when you look at verse 23, it says, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia. That's like more than a thousand Ks by foot, and he's just done it in a sentence. So why is Luke sparing us, Luke, the author of Acts, why is he sparing us the details here? I'm not sure if it was, if he had access to the information. Uh, Maybe it's just not important for his purposes. But either way, he's not, you know, going into detail for us. But what he does tell us, which is important, I think, is that the nature of this third and final missionary journey is quite different. This time, he's going back to churches he's already been to, to strengthen and equip the Christians there, which means he's probably not going to get as much of a hostile reception because he's going back to friends, right? He's not going to evangelize, he's going to disciple. So that means that the nature of this third missionary journey is quite different to all of the rest. And as we move through what Paul does in the coming weeks, or I guess after Christmas, we'll see more about that. Now, I could spend a good hour talking about the significance of strengthening the church and the disciples, but I'm going to have to leave it there and I want to move on again uh, because I want to push through to this point about prophecy here. So with all of that said, uh, that's really just the background setting the scene now for the second point on our list, and that is why prophecy matters because prophecy helps us to see the bigger picture. So look here at verse 24. The scene shifts completely. It's like you're watching a movie and at like, you know, scene one is this person in this place and then just cuts and you're over here now. Now we are in a familiar place, Ephesus. And who's in Ephesus, remember? Aquila and Priscilla. So Luke is taking us back to verse 19. He's, he's kind of going back to, to where he left us off there. 
But now there's this new character that's been introduced that we haven't met, we haven't even heard of up until this point in the New Testament. This is the first time we're introduced to this bloke named Apollos. We read in verse 24 that Apollos, he was a Jew, a native of Alexandria. Now, any history buffs here, you may know that Alexandria was a pretty big deal back then. It's like the top three of the major cities in the Roman Empire. So you have Rome, Antioch, where Paul is, and then Alexandria as well. Uh, it was a magnificent city, founded in 332 BC by Alexander the Great, his namesake. Um, and it had a huge population, about the same size as Antioch, about 500,000, which back then was big. And it also had a huge Jewish population. In fact, about a third of its population was Jewish. We read here as well that Apollos not only been a Jew from Alexandria, he was also an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, who, verse 25, had been instructed in the way of the Lord. So he's well-spoken and he's smart. In fact, this word competent means, uh, it's the word dunatos, and it, it just, it's where we get our English word dynamite from. So he had an explosive intellect, if you will. We also see here as well that Apollos was fervent in spirit. Now that literally translates to he was boiling over. And I just love that. So this guy feels what he thinks. He's like the perfect theologian, charismatic individual. <laughs> Often today we have one or the other represented, but to have it in one is, a, is an exciting combination. Uh, this is all going to make a lot more sense, by the way, by the time we get to verse 28 here uh, and we see what this dude, Apollos, does in the city of Corinth. But, shh, no spoilers. So he was a theologically precise, charismatically on fire for Jesus individual. And we know that it was for Jesus because of what we read here next in, uh, I think it's verse 25. We read, Apollos spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. But here's where it gets interesting. Look right in the middle of verse 25, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, what's that all about? The baptism of John is a reference not to John, the author of the fourth gospel, but to John the Baptist, the prophet who appears at the beginning of all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So, we've just introduced ourselves to Apollos. Let's introduce ourselves to John the Baptist. Who was this bloke? Well, he was a relative of Jesus. At the beginning of Luke's gospel, we read that Elizabeth was the mother of John and Mary the mother of Jesus. So they were relatives, both pregnant at the same time, which means that Jesus and John were about the same age as one another. We also read that when John grew up, he became this camel-haired, clothed, bug-eating, nomad-living, eccentric prophet who spoke on the outer regions of the desert. It kind of sounds crazy enough to just politely ignore. But John didn't exactly fly under the radar. He had a tendency to draw large crowds. People would come from all over to hear him speak. Why? What was he doing? What was he saying to get so much attention? The answer is John the Baptist was a prophet. Not just any prophet, though. The last of the Old Testament prophets. And that was magnetic for Israel at this time, because it had been centuries since Israel had a prophet speaking for God. It was just radio silence from above. But John comes on the scene as a voice in the desert. He's actually the guy that the prophets prophesied about. Isaiah 40, we read of a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Malachi 3, a messenger will come and prepare the way before me, says the Lord. When you line up what the Old Testament has to say and the figure of John the Baptist, there is no mistaking that John is that voice in the desert, the messenger preparing the way of the Lord. So the baptism of John then was a baptism of preparation for the coming of the Lord. Now, baptism wasn't new with Christianity. Uh, the practice of ritualistic immersions uh, predates Christianity in the Hebrew Scriptures as a means of purification, a symbolic act to cleanse oneself from ceremonial uncleanness. So in this sense, the baptism of John, to tie it all together, 
was symbolic preparation for the people of Israel to get them ready to be cleaned by the Lord. It was all about anticipation. The kingdom was near because the king was here. It was all about preparation. The people of Israel were about to receive their long-awaited Messiah. So Apollos, John the Baptist, that now begs the question, who is this Messiah? The word Messiah is a Hebrew word. In the Greek, uh, the original language of the New Testament, it's translated as Christ. So whenever you see the word Messiah or Christ, they're just different translations of the same word. And that word means simply anointed one. When you open up your Old Testament, for example, you'll find the word Messiah used in reference to kings and priests, people anointed and appointed to certain positions and offices throughout Israel's history. That's what the word Messiah or Christ means in its simplest. But just like in English, how we have words that have a general meaning um, and that same word that can be used in a proper noun, take, for example, labor. It just means work or you put a capital L and it refers to the political party under Anthony Albanese, our PM here in Australia. In a similar way, Messiah can be used in a general sense to mean anointed one or in a proper noun sense as a name or a title to refer to the Anointed One, the capital M Messiah. Now, where did this idea of a unique capital M Messiah arrive in Israel's thought and history and tradition? Well, throughout Israel's history, as the Jewish people faced various challenges such as exile and persecution and the loss of their temple, there grew this sense that it was just impossible for any human appointed priest or king to rescue them from their situation. And so throughout the Hebrew Old Testament, we find this idea of a uniquely God-appointed capital M Messiah who will rise up and redeem Israel from being um, oppressed and subjugated by foreign nations, who will renew her people and restore her former glory. But as time went on, and Israel received blessings and cursings and more cursings and more cursings, as her temple was destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and her people scattered and regathered and scattered, the rabbis, the Jewish teachers, began to reinterpret the significance of what this Messiah is or represents. If you'd like, I don't have time now, but my, my wife encouraged me to cut this out of the talk. You'll thank her later. But there is a fascinating evolution of the idea of the Messiah for the last 2,000 years so that when you speak to any Jewish friends of yours today... Um, they don't necessarily believe the same thing, right? So I hope somebody comes and talks to me because that's really exciting. The point is, there was this change, this evolution of the idea of the Messiah as Israel's situation ebbed and flowed throughout history. Make sense? Why does that matter? Why are we talking about this? Because when we come here to Acts chapter 18 and we read that Apollos knew only the baptism of John, that means that he had an expectation, an anticipation of the Messiah. And so now you and I need to be asking ourselves the question, what was his expectation? What was his anticipation of this Messiah? Well, given that the second temple was standing at that time, given that uh, Rome was in control and in power, a, a military mighty kind of empire, there was his expectation in the first century at the time of Paul and Apollos and Jesus that this Messiah would be a conquering, social, political, revolutionary, military kind of king. That probably was the expectation of John and Apollos about what or who this Messiah should be. And I want to back that up here, not just with extra-biblical history, but with a little bit of exegesis. I think we can strengthen this view because do you remember the message that John the Baptist sent to Jesus when he was in prison? John the Baptist got so much attention that he gets arrested and locked up and eventually his head is cut off to entertain guests at a dinner party. And I don't say that lightly or tritely, right? This was a man's life. This was Elizabeth's baby boy that was kicking in the womb. This is the one of whom Jesus said, of all the prophets, there is none greater than John. And yet he's killed at the age of 30. His head's put on a dinner platter for the amusement of guests at a dinner party in Herod's house. It's not very triumphal, is it? 
Like here is the one preparing the way for the conquering king and he just got conquered. I think this was probably in the mind of John as he was in prison at Herod's house because he could probably see the writing on the wall. And so he gets this opportunity to get a message out and he gets this message out to Jesus, Matthew 11, and he says, are you the one who is to come or shall we be looking for another? John recognized Jesus was the Messiah, make no mistake, John 1.29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He had made that connection at the Jordan River. But Jesus wasn't exactly living up to his expectations now as to what he thought the Messiah should be. Why else would he have asked that question? What did Jesus say in response? Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, Isaiah 35.5. And the lame walk, Isaiah 35, 6. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, Isaiah 29, 18. And the dead are raised up, Isaiah 26, 19. And the poor have good news. Gospel preached to them, Isaiah 61, 1. You see what Jesus is doing here. He's filling in the prophetic gaps in the mind and expectations and yearnings of John the Baptist. It's like he's saying, John, brother, you know the scriptures. And I know that you are waiting for the Messiah to come. But your expectation of who the Messiah is needs to be shaped by what you know in the Word and what you see me doing. Not by what the rabbis have told you, what by the Jewish culture in the first century is telling you, but by what you know in the Word and what you see me doing. Isn't that what Tim Keller was saying? That he learned to be grateful for the side swipes, because they remind him to reorient himself to the convictions of his head, what he knows, and his heart, what he believes. And you know, it's not that the Jews or John per se were necessarily wrong in expecting a conquering king for a Messiah. As we've seen in the Old Testament, there is talk about a royal lineage through the line of David that will last forever. But that's not all the Old Testament says. It also speaks of a suffering servant. And the Jews hadn't factored that into their expectations. They didn't have any idea of two advents, two comings. They had collapsed all of their expectations into one coming, one triumphal announcement, pronouncement of the conquering King Messiah. So ultimately, that's why the Jews handed Jesus over to be crucified, because he He was blaspheming for trying to claim to be the Messiah. That is not what the Messiah looks like. But what happens when that Jesus is handed over to Rome? Well, first he's scourged. He had a crown of thorns twisted and pressed into his scalp. It's kind of kingly in a mocking kind of way. And that's what they did. Hail, King of the Jews. And Pilate has the good sense to call him in and ask, like, because they're calling him a king, where are you from? Like, maybe he's got something wrong here and maybe Rome's going to be upset because he's just started some sort of war with a foreign nation. What did Jesus say? John 19. Nothing. He was silent. Why was he silent? I mean, of all the times to speak, Jesus. John the Baptist preached, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was silent because in order to be that conquering Lamb of God, he had to be the one of whom it is also written, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Jesus is the conquering king because it is precisely through suffering that he conquers. Philippians 2, Hebrews 2, 1 Corinthians 15, Colossians 2. This is the upside-down, subversive nature of the gospel. It's just not the way our world does stuff. There is no getting around it, though. The Jewish anticipation of a conquering king cannot bypass the suffering servant because the conquering comes through the cross. Because it wasn't Rome that needed conquering, ultimately. 
It was the problem in the human heart that caused Rome to be what it was. This is the problem we call sin, the wages of which is death. And if you want to fix that issue, you need to deal with it, which is why Jesus went to the cross and he died. This is all about peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. So Jesus was reforming Judaism by clearing the clutter of tradition and extra-biblical expectations by pointing people back to the prophecies of Messiah in the Hebrew Old Testament. I mean, remember Luke 24, after Jesus' death and resurrection, he was walking on this road to Emmaus, and he strikes up this conversation with two people from Jerusalem who evidently didn't recognize him at the time. And this is my paraphrase. What did they say to him? Like, Jesus is like, well, you guys are all right. You look a bit down. And they're like, bro, like, where have you been? What rock have you been living under? Uh, this, this amazing prophet, Jesus, was killed and now his tomb's empty and people are saying that he's come back alive. And Jesus is like, well, I can tell you about the rock I was living under. Uh, he, he said, oh foolish ones, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things to enter his glory? And then it says, listen to this, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus gives the two on the road to Emmaus the bigger picture. Jesus gives John the Baptist in prison the bigger picture. And here in Acts chapter 18, Aquila and Priscilla give Apollos the bigger picture. Apollos knew all of the Old Testament, all the way down to John the Baptist, even down to connecting John the, uh, Jesus as the Messiah, like John the Baptist had. But he didn't know what Jesus had done. He anticipated Messiah. He didn't know what the Messiah had accomplished. So Priscilla and Aquila pull him to the side, have a quiet word, and fill in the gaps. They give him the bigger picture. Prophecy is important because it helps us to see the bigger picture of God's plans. And that's important for you and I today, because that means that it's the Bible that tells us about the times we're living in, not the times we're living in, that tell us about the Bible. Today, you and I are living in a very, very tense social, political, geopolitical time. And I'll be the first one to say, please invite me back here, because I think it's important that we talk about it. We need to be talking about this stuff. We need to understand the times we're living in in order to know what it is we're supposed to do. But the key to understanding the prophetic significance of what is happening in our world right now is not to be taking stock of the latest bomb blast in Israel. It's to be knowing what the Word of God says. Apollos was in this unrepeatable place in redemptive history, between the Old Testament, the New Testament, Judaism phasing out, Christianity coming in, and he was missing some key details. We are not in that position today. We have the word, in the words of Peter, the prophetic word, more fully confirmed, and we would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in our hearts. And I think when we come to this bigger picture of God's word as the datum of truth, the bigger picture so that we can get orientation in our local situations here or what's going on around the world, there's something very healthy about that. Like there's something really healthy about escaping the minutia of our individual personal situations to see the bigger picture of God's word or indeed the geopolitical rumblings around our world to see the bigger picture of God's work. Because here's the counterintuitive thing about prophecy. If you can take your eyes off your own life and see God's bigger picture, that's when you actually start to find yourself. As C.S. Lewis said, look for Christ and you'll find him, and everything else will be thrown in with him. Prophecy isn't just about the things that have happened in the past or the things that will happen in the future. It's also about the things that are happening right now in your life and around the world. We are all in this very day in the middle of prophecy, in the middle of God's bigger picture. 
And that should therefore give you and I perspective to know where we've come from, where we're going. This is something that the world just does not have today. Footnote, it's fascinating in the book called The Postmodern Condition by Loyotard when postmodernism was just getting all excited back in the late 60s. He kicks off and defines postmodernism as the dissolution or the destruction of meta-narratives, the destroying of stories of a past, a present and a future. When you destroy a story, you don't know where to locate characters. When you have a story, you know where to find yourself, you get orientation. This is the bigger picture that is sorely missing in our culture today. It gives orientations to our expectations. Orientations to our expectations, to our desires, to our loves, to our losses. And as Tim Keller was saying, despite his cancer, he could still move forward with purpose. Knowing your place in the bigger picture can bring not necessarily just happiness, but a deep-seated joy. Can you imagine, therefore, the thrill that that little conversation between Aquila, Priscilla and Apollos would have been for Apollos? He had spent his whole life anticipating the Messiah, and now it just makes sense. It's like cool water to a parched mouth. That's what the gospel does to people. You know, we sing the song, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. And we have this image in our head of this pretty dainty deer galloping and gallivanting through the forest. You know, oh, there's a mountain stream. Oh, let's go for a wee drink or a drink and then a wee or whichever order you want to think of it. And he's going through this forest. That is not a pretty dainty deer. That is a picture of a dying, desperate, dehydrated animal that is like, if I don't get to water, I'm done. It is earnest and urgent. That's why prophecy matters, because it orients us to the bigger picture of God's plans and purposes, opening our mouths to sing praise and joy with the sweet satisfaction of knowing God and the truth of his word. That's why we sing at this time of year, joy to the world, joy to the world. The Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Sometimes you can't help but sing. Prophecy matters because it helps us to see the bigger picture. Secondly, and a bit shorter, don't worry. Prophecy matters because it helps us to move with confidence. Apollos is corrected by Priscilla and Aquila. And we read here, verse 27 to 28, when he wished to cross to Achaia, which is the region, by the way, where the city of Corinth was. So he was heading back to Corinth. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Alrighty, so Apollos gets filled in by Aquila and Priscilla on the bigger picture of God's plans. Uh, His expectations have been oriented now from anticipating Messiah to the accomplishments of Messiah in Jesus. Now, as a result, he's just stoked. So he gets up and he moves with confidence. Literally, he moves. He crosses the Aegean Sea to the region of Achaia. This is the journey that Paul, Timothy, and Silas made a couple of months ago. Uh, And I say with confidence here for two reasons. First, in the fact that the brothers in Ephesus including Priscilla and Aquila, the the, the church in Ephesus encouraged him to go. So clearly they were confident in his understanding now of the full picture of who Jesus is. There's confidence in the sending of Apollos, but there's also confidence in the substance of Apollos' ministry now in Corinth. As we read here, Apollos is, uh, he arrives and he both helped those who through grace had believed and powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This word powerfully in the Greek, uh, we can't really translate it properly into English, like with a word-for-word translation, but it means something like this. He powerfully argued them down all the time, constantly. Boom. So Apollos is that confident in the gospel that he just takes it to the Corinthians. 
in his dynamite, flaming hot kind of way, right? But why was he so brazen and bold? Like, why didn't he have the good sense to pull them aside and have a quiet word with them like Priscilla and Aquila had with him back in Ephesus? Was this ego? No, remember, this wasn't the first rodeo in Corinth. The Corinthian Jews had heard the gospel. Back at the beginning of uh, Acts chapter 18, we read this, verse 5 and 6. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, those traveling buddies caught up with Paul. Paul was occupied doing what? Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. Sounds a little bit like Apollos now. He's coming in for round two. And when they opposed and reviled him, what did Paul say? What did he do? He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. This was not exactly a, a, this was a hostile place. So where Priscilla and Aquila were dealing with a humble person in Apollos, Apollos was dealing with proud ego in Corinth. So I think that's why he comes at them and does what he does, by just overwhelming them, by showing them by the Scriptures, beating them down, that the Christ, that the Messiah was in fact Jesus. Now you might ask, how exactly does somebody beat somebody down with showing, by showing them from the Old Testament that Messiah is Jesus? Well, I'm going to try a little experiment with you all. That's why I love preaching on my home turf. I get to test things out on you all, and if it doesn't work, hopefully I've got enough relational capital and you can forgive me. I want to have a crack at making you feel overwhelmed right now for the rest of this talk. I, I want you to be a little bit brain-drained by the end of it. I want to try and do my best to overwhelm you by showing from the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So if you need to stretch or stand up for a moment, you're welcome. You've got three seconds. All right, here we go. Where do we begin? Why don't we begin in the beginning? Genesis 1.1. We read about creation. It's all good. Structured harmony, order, working the way it's meant to under God. Turn the page and we read about this thing that is sometimes called the fall. It refers to the fact that human beings used our own free will to go against the ordered creation of this world that God had set up. That was good. And by going against what was good, all you have is the alternative is bad. By going against he who is life, what is the alternative? Non-life, we call that death. This is why sin is not good and its consequence is death. That is the fall right? It's, it's not, the sin is not some dark, mystic steam that comes into your life and you can't control it. Sin is fundamentally you just doing things your own way to the neglect of who God is. And it is represented here in Genesis 3 in this choice of eating forbidden fruit. So disobedience seems pretty trivial, like really? Okay, turn the page and we escalate pretty quickly from eating fruit that was forbidden to sibling homicide. Keep on reading, and we get to worldwide wickedness in the flood of Noah. First military conflict, full-scale war, Genesis 14, the battle of the great kings. Keep on going, keep on going. That's the Old Testament. But in the middle of all of this, something happens. Genesis 3, the fall happens, people sin. And right at that moment, God comes in with a promise. Genesis 3.15, that one day the son or the, the child, the offspring of a woman will stomp on the head of evil. Now, those of us who've read of head know that that is referring to Jesus, but it would not have been clear to anyone back then who that was. I mean, how could it? But this is the nature of prophecy in the Bible, structured in terms of promise and fulfillment. Promises are made. Over time, we get more detail, more clarity, until ultimately we see those promises fulfilled. So the very first promise in the Bible, the very first prophecy is of a child in Genesis 3. We continue to read, and I'm giving you the abridged version here. Please go home, spend about a year reading the Old Testament for yourself. <laughs> Next, we get to Genesis 18. And here we read uh, another promise, only this time it's a promise for many children. God says to Abraham that he will have a son, and from that son will come the whole race of people. Now, Abraham was 99 years old. His wife, Sarah, was 89 years old, and she literally laughs. She's like, oh, don't you know how this anatomy thing works? It ain't happening right over here, okay? And the Lord's probably like, yeah, I created you. I get it. The point is, we have 
a promise of a child in a place and a space that it would not have been possible for humanity to have brought it about themselves. Keep that in your head. We keep on reading and we get to Isaiah now and we read this in Isaiah 7:14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So now we've got another promise of a child and we're getting more information. It's something unique. There's a sign. There's something different about this child. It's going to be the child of a virgin. Turn the page into the New Testament and what do we find? Matthew 1. The birth of Jesus the Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so we sing, silent night, holy night. All is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin, mother and child. This has always been the way of the Lord. God said to Abraham, I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Isaiah writes in his prophecy, a voice of one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. Matthew writes in his gospel, Matthew chapter 3 of John the Baptist, who was crying in the wilderness as one who was preparing the way of the Lord. Apollos in Acts chapter 18, we get to him, who was this learned Jew from Alexandria, a very interesting guy who was instructed in the way of the Lord. This has always been the way of the Lord. This promised child. Who is this promised child? John 14, 6. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, said Jesus. But wait, there's more. Hold on. Acts 9, 2. Who are Christians called? That's not a rhetorical question. The way. The way. We are Members of the way, ones of the way, Christ ones. Past promises, present promises, future promises, they all point to Jesus. This has always been the way of the Lord. And the reason why is because of what happened to begin with in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall of garden. Our sin puts us in this position in this world where we just can't help ourselves, right? We literally cannot help ourselves with our situation. So if there was to be any hope for humanity, there had to be not only a promise from the outside, but a fulfillment of that promise from the outside. God would have to step in and get involved because all of Israel's anointings and appointings and little M messiahs and kings and priests and all of our expectations today with career and success and relationships and money and making a legacy for ourselves, none of it can undo this sense of falling short that we all have. We can't escape our own death. If you don't believe me, the death rate is still one per one. This is the situation of humanity all around our world right now, which is again why we sing at this time of the year, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared. And the soul felt its worth. The thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Like cool water to a parched mouth, eh? This is the grand story of the Bible. God does a miracle in creation. We mess it up. God does a miracle by opening the womb of Sarah. Israel messes it up. So God does another miracle in the womb this time of the Virgin Mary. Jesus doesn't mess it up. So God continues now to do a work through Jesus in the lives of his people today called Christians, the church, who are miraculously born again into his rightness. And guess what? We mess it up all the time. But that's kind of the point because that's why we are now commissioned to go out there and tell this world in mess and in brokenness about this amazing grace that has changed a wretch like me. I once was lost. I now am found oriented with my expectation. Was blind, but now I see because I see the bigger picture, right? I just, wow, that, that worked. <laughs> this is the way of Christianity. That's why Jesus commissions his disciples right at the end before he went up to heaven to get out there and tell people about it. Because even though we stuff up and we fall down all the time as Christians, it's not about us, right? 
If we were the way, we wouldn't be glorifying Jesus. The fact that we fail as people in the church and the fact that we're forgiven in that failure is a sign to the gospel that we all believe. It's why it breaks my heart when I hear that people say, I cannot be a Christian anymore because the church has let me down. I get the grief, like truly, there has been horror done in the name of Christianity. But just like a beautiful composition, when it's played out of tune or when people are playing it off key, that doesn't mean that the composition isn't beautiful. We need to go and listen to the composer himself, Jesus Christ. This is good news because it conquers through suffering. It's victory through failure. When Jesus died on the cross, he won through losing. He didn't fight fire with fire. He didn't raise an army to dispose of the corruptions of Rome. He didn't take power for himself. He gave it up. That's how he conquered. The sword fell on him and it broke him, but it broke at the same time because Jesus came back alive. That's why one author calls it the death of death in the death of Christ. Life triumphs over death, and I'm staking my life on the last man standing. So when we look at Acts chapter 18 now and verse 28, and we ask ourselves, what would Apollos have been showing these people from the Scriptures? I think it was probably something like that. But there's so much more he would have said, I believe, that he could have said. And I am mindful of the clock, but I don't think I've overwhelmed you yet, so I'm going to rapid fire and finish, I promise. Consider these for yourself. Micah, written about 700 years before Jesus, predicts the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Jeremiah, written about 600 years before Jesus, predicts a righteous king from the line of David. Jesus' genealogy shows that he was born from the royal line of David. Zechariah, written about 500 years before Jesus, predicts the Messiah will enter Jerusalem on a donkey before being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. A week before his death, Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, and the night before his death, Jesus was betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. Daniel, written about five to 600 years before Jesus, predicts that after 490 years from the decree of Artaxerxes, there will be atonement for sin. The decree of Artaxerxes was in 458 BC, which takes us, when you add 490 on, to about 80, 32, or 33, right about the time that Jesus died to atone for sins on the cross. The Psalms, written about a thousand years before Jesus, speaks of death by crucifixion before crucifixion had even been invented yet. Isaiah, written about 700 years before Jesus, speaks of a burial in a rich man's tomb and a resurrection where the suffering will see life again. Jesus was buried in the tomb of an affluent man named Joseph of Arimathea and three days later was seen alive. Overwhelmed? We could do this all night. We could literally be here all night. There are 1,817 prophecies in the Hebrew Old Testament, constituting 26.8% of the entire written text in the Bible. You better believe we could be here all night. But I respect you, and uh, my wife said that we're not doing that. I know I'm being a bit obnoxious here, right? I'm trying to embody my, my friend, Paulus, that I've just appreciated so much as I've read this. But let me ask you with gentleness and all sincerity from the bottom of my heart. If there is any question in your mind about who Jesus is, how do you explain any of this? Like seriously. Maybe it's all coincidence. Maybe it was added in retrospect. Somehow intentionally fulfilled like Jesus knew the prophecies and just positioned himself to fulfill them. I'd submit to you that the sheer volume and scope of the prophecies we're talking about here raise serious problems for any attempt to explain them away. I mean, even if Jesus did deliberately try to fulfill the prophecies, he couldn't well have orchestrated the time or place of his birth. So call me naive, but I truly do believe that fulfilled prophecy is one of the most underappreciated evidences, not just for God in general, but the Christ in particular. Prophecy matters because it helps us to see the bigger picture and it helps us to move with confidence to move like Apollos across the Aegean, like Dave Payne in Southeast Asia, like the Campbells in Thailand, like Tony as he heads across to Africa, like Gabrielle and Natalia as they head on over to South America, wherever you are in your place and space here in Newcastle, even if that's through pancreatic cancer, 
you can move with confidence, knowing your maker through your Messiah. To live a life knowing that death has lost its power over you because of what Jesus did on the cross is to live a life of love and thankfulness, not fear and anxiety. As Keller said, when we take time to remember how to deal with our fears and savour our joys, the consolations are stronger and sweeter than ever. And look, there's a talk for another day here, but let me state it. If everything that was promised about Jesus' first coming was fulfilled with literal exactness, then you can stake your life on the fact that when he comes again at the end of the age, it'll be fulfilled in the same way. So read your word. Love your word. See the bigger picture and get on and walk out with confidence. So one more carol for you. As prophecy helps us with all of this, I want to charge you all now to go and tell it on the mountains, over the hills and everywhere. Go and tell it on the mountains that Jesus Christ is born. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word here in Acts 22 that is not void. This transition between journeys uh, in the evangelism and outreach of Paul that uh, just bears so much fruit in our lives today as we consider the bigger picture of your prophetic word uh, and the fulfillment thereof in your son, Jesus. Lord, I don't know everyone in this room and where they're coming from, but Father, I just pray two things. Number one, if we don't know you and we don't know this bigger picture, that just looking at this word today and taking it at face value, there'd be something in us that it is at least irritated with the question, who was Jesus? Like Pilate, who, who are you? But I pray, Lord, that there would not be a heart that walks away like Pilate when he says, oh, what is truth? But Lord, that there would be people here today who yield to that question and like finding cool water to a dry mouth perhaps for the first time in their lives, just find themselves refreshed with the love of life that comes on the dawn of the day beyond the empty tomb. Lord, I just ask as well for those of us who do know you and we have been walking on the narrow road for some time, it gets weary, it gets dusty, sometimes we fall and break a toe. But Lord, again, as we come to your word, I just ask that we would be refreshed anew mm. to be able to walk with poise because we know in your word that that is what gets attention from people as they look at us and say, how can you keep on going? Lord, I just ask that we would live lives of testimony to the grace that we've received in Jesus, that people may ask us for the reason for that hope within and that we may give that answer with gentleness and respect in the manner that you've dealt with us. Father, this Advent, it's exciting. We love Christmas, many of us. For others, it's a painful time of the year because of the recognition of loss. But Lord, in your bigger picture, you cover all bases, the highs and the lows. And so may this Advent season be one where all of us find ourselves in your story in a new way, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.